Welcome, loyal listener, to another episode of Engaging Experts with Journal of Clinical Pathways, 15-minute conversations with innovators in value-based care. On today's episode, we chatted with Drs. Anne-Sophie Darlington and Andrew Bottomley of the European Organization for Research and Treatment of Cancer, or EORTC, about how quality of life is making waves in cancer care in more ways than one. Drs. Darlington and Bottomley provide perspective on how quality of life is regarded by providers and patients today, training needed for clinicians to be better equipped for quality of life conversations with patients, and how quality of life can fit into clinical pathways and clinical decision support tools, among other topics. Thank you for coming on to discuss quality of life in patients and among other topics, but I want to start here. What is quality of life and how is it specifically understood from the perspective of both the provider and the patient? It has to be understood as more than just understanding what people are going through on a physical level. So I think that's where it's come from. A while ago, what was measured was mostly around um, how people are doing physically, because that was important in terms of survival, making sure people were cured. And then at some point, especially from a patient point of view, it became important to measure more than just the physical aspect. So um, quality of life then was conceptualized as trying to uh, capture um, emotional well-being, social well-being, um, as well as physical well-being. I think everyone understands it. What we do know is what health professionals tend to focus on, rightly so, obviously, is the physical aspects, are the symptoms that people are experiencing. How are they doing um, physically? What, what does that tell them about how their progress is in terms of their treatment and um, their cure? Whereas um, patients find those things obviously very important as well, but they also are kind of living with the impact of what's going on on their lives. Are they able to still go out? Are they able to, are they anxious? How are they feeling? How are they managing their life? Can they still go um, to work? So the way that it's approached and assessed is different. And we also kind of, we know very well that, um, for instance, if you were to ask health professionals to assess a patient's pain, they would assess that differently to when you ask the patient. So we know there's a discrepancy there. How is quality of life information generally included and regarded in cancer care decision-making? And how much priority or weight do treating clinicians or providers place on quality of life information? From my side, as a chap who's been doing clinical trials most of my career, I think you're certainly seeing that information being used a lot more now in decision-making than when it used to be. For example, if you look at submissions of new drugs uh, to regulators, you would see in the last uh, five or six years, there's been at least uh, 26 drug approvals where quality of life has been accepted in the label as a secondary endpoint so that clinicians can be aware of the clinical benefits of a particular new treatment. Um, Now, in the US, of course, we know that the FDA as a slightly more uh, rigorous view and how many label claims are, are much less than in the EMEA. Um, but you can start to see it's actually focusing in, in the clinician's minds. They're using this information. They're taking it from publications. And so increasingly over the last of five or 10 years, we start to see that quality of life information is really quite useful as a decision maker. Um, but you need to see, of course, uh, that, that grow and more confidence uh, in how quality of life information has been used. And we need to work on that as a, as a research community. 
I think another level that's interesting to to focus on is because you have different levels of where the quality of life information can be used. Obviously, you have them as a, an outcome for a group in clinical trials, but it's also can be used in clinical practice, as we know, that, you know, that um, health professionals can access the quality of life information if they ask patients to complete a questionnaire beforehand, for instance, and they use it in clinical practice to, to assess what's most important to them. And I think the other thing is that um, when, when we talk about this uh, as a topic, it's very clear that health professionals want to know as much as possible around what, how to use quality of life information. Because I, I guess actually what they're faced with in clinic all the time is that they've got a patient with a different circumstances and, and different needs for information. And they, they want to be able to find out the best way to access that so that they can jointly make the best decision for treatment. Because it is that, isn't it? It's about how, what, what do patients value? What does, what does a patient value? And therefore, what does that mean for the decisions that they can make around their treatment and what they will accept and not accept or, and, and yeah. interpret information? I think you're right. You've got the two levels. My sort of global level is a management level at clinical trials as decision makers, and then individual level as and Sophia's really well uh, voiced. And I think there's work by Neil Aronson and by Galina Velikova, where they interviewed uh, patients after their quality of life were collected and say, did that improve the consultation? And the patient said, yes, we feel that the clinicians were more paying more attention. And of course, the clinicians were also very happy because they were more engaged with the patients and they were able to direct them better. For example, if they had more nausea, more diarrhea, they could bring in these supportive uh, therapy. So I think in many studies now, and we mentioned too, but there are several ongoing studies, quality of life is really starting to be a more of a useful decision tool um, than it certainly used to be in the past. How do patients generally weigh their own quality of life factors in determining treatment options? Or is quality of life generally more important to patients than, than say, clinical outcomes or even financial toxicity? Or do you think it varies more on a patient-by-patient -patient case? All things always depend, don't they? They depend on people's situation. I think um, oftentimes um, maybe in the beginning of treatment, it depends on, on what they've been told about um, their prognosis, what they think the to toxicity will be like, what, what will the symptoms be like that they'll be experiencing, and therefore how does that impact on, on their life? What are their circumstances? Do they live alone? Do they have children in their house? Are they old? So there's loads of factors that are influencing that decision-making. And I, I'm not sure that it's always the case that patients value their quality of life circumstances more because there's also instances where maybe health professionals might think, is it really a good idea to go ahead with this treatment given that it's very burdensome and patients will push for it. So I think there on both sides, there are things that, that need to be weighed in a sense. Um, but, but that's the complexity of that decision-making. And I think all of us try as much as possible to get a handle on those kinds of factors um, to be able to harness how we can best support people. And we, all, we also know that people have different needs in terms of the information that they get and how they interpret that information. You know, interpreting percentages of, of risk for a certain treatment or not. Th those things are really difficult for people to grasp, but influence the way that they make decisions also. And you mentioned, for example, uh, how do the patients compare it, for example, compared 
to financial toxicity. Mm. And it, it is all an individual issue. For example, um, in the European setting, healthcare systems are public, and so patients don't generally have to pay for treatments. So financial toxicity and comparing that to quality of life, you would imagine will be different within the European setting uh, than in the U US setting, for example. And for example, I think, you know, it's very difficult to say what patients would value. But I think in, in a palliative setting, of course, that's where quality of life comes to itself. When, you know, you can increase the survival, but of course you've got to try and improve quality of life as much as you can. And I think that's when you see patients trying to sort of maximize uh, the benefits of the, the setting and the treatment there. But equally, at that point in time, if they're then offered the opportunity of a trial, um, which probably has maybe not, a, I mean, not overall a very good chance of giving them anything, um, that hope of, of, of something will often push people to go into a situation that is going to give them a lot of symptoms and, and, and maybe not such a great quality of life with the hope that it might do something. So, so it, I think, I think it's, it's very difficult. And it's not always the case that those who are at the end of life will be ready to, to, to think about their quality of life only if there is an opportunity in some way to, to have a clinical trial and, and, and that, that decision-making changes all the time, obviously, because if it's not working or the, or the symptoms are awful, you know, that, that adjustment has to be made. And I'm curious if either of you can comment on the sort of education that our clinicians need or, or the materials that they can provide for patients in the palliative setting to better inform uh, on their quality of life decisions or quality of life conversations that may need to be had yeah i mean i can say a few things in fact that there's a big big lack in medical education for any insights into quality of life i think in most trainings for most medics you know maybe it's one or two days or three days on communication but there's no training on how to assess uh, quality of life so when most clinicians come out of school they have no understanding of which measure to assess how to assess it uh, and so that is a big, big issue, and that's something uh, a great big training need. And certainly at the URTC for the last few years, we've been putting on conferences and training workshops to try to get the clinicians to have a greater understanding of how best to assess quality of life in both uh, healthy population or early diagnosis and advanced population. And I think there's great work done by uh, Leslie Fallowfield, who's a, a senior nurse practitioner researcher who's been doing a lot about communication, about the diagnosis, about uh, breaking bad news, and of course, which tools to use for clinicians. So I think that's certainly a big field um, that we need to improve on. I mean, I'm sure Anne Sophie will agree on that. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting one because I think when you ask health professionals what they need most, it's, it's training in having those difficult conversations. That's what they always want. And I think medical schools are getting better at implementing that kind of training. And and it's realizing on the one hand that actually those conversations need to start early and not only at the cusp of, I'm sorry, we can't do anything for you. It's always about assessing goals and what people want. And basically that's about assessing what quality of life issues are most important for people. And I think it's also about understanding that those conversations aren't easy and that if we, we probably have to get to a place where people accept that the training around 
those kind of conversations. And I think that has a parallel with quality of life. They are not a formulaic um, kind of conversations. What we don't want is sort of quality of life um, kind of technicians where you kind of have the right questions to ask. What you want is for people to be able to um, improvise and be able to ask the right questions and, and, and go with what the patient's are saying and 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 also maybe realizing that um being very honest that having a conversation about very difficult things and about decisions that are hard is not very nice it's not very nice and so we, we mustn't get to a point where we think that we can train people um to do these things well without acknowledging that there is risk of upsetting people because it's an upsetting situation but and that it's difficult and it's emotionally taxing that's really interesting you bring up the you know the idea of training people to quote unquote improvise or you know not being able to train in that in that light and i and i think at the root of what we're asking clinicians to do with this training is to discover empathy really is what you're yeah. talking about is is connecting with an individual patient sitting in front of you on an emotional level to the point where you can understand their pain points their wants desires and, and, and how they want to carry forward and be able to speak out loud and sort of counsel patients through that journey is really what we're asking clinicians to do. So it's more or less training in empathy. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And you often hear that empathy is, is not learned behavior. You either have it or you don't. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think oftentimes they do want to do it. And I think another point that's maybe worth noting is that patients from their point of view don't always want to talk to health professionals about their emotional things so it's not the case always that 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 it's just that, that the doctor is not asking about it but i think maybe they see that consultation for very much for the physical aspects they, for some patients they may want to talk about other things and their quality of life and what's important to them but sometimes also nurses are very well placed to do that and we mustn't forget their role in in actually doing a lot of that work around and finding out what's important for patients and, and making sure we act on that. But I just want to add, as much as empathy is important, we still need to bring in that basic training where they need to understand just a little bit about these measures and what are the core issues for a cancer patient. And then if they have that understanding, of course, then the empathy can come along. But we know from various studies that, you know, once you start to discuss quality of life, it does increase the clinician's consultation time and they're very busy in these hospitals and so if you start to ask questions about their anxiety, their, their general worries, etc. I think the studies have shown it can increase the consultation by two or three minutes. If you add that by 10 patients over the, the meeting, the day's clinic, then it can just add up to a lot of additional time for the clinician. So of course maybe they're tempted not to assess quality of life and as Anne-Sophie says, it's, uh, often it's the nurses that are doing this in a clinical trial setting. And that's a very valuable resource um, to use and to train up as well. And so very often on conferences and courses that the EITC offer, we see a very strong contingent from the nurses uh, who are really quite able uh, to come along, give support to the clinician when they're doing their uh, assessments. Before we, uh, you know, wrap up the interview, I wanted to give you both the opportunity to plug some of the <laughs> some of the latest work that EORTC is doing, and, and what your recent publications have have done, and, and even uh, what your feedback has been from the from the larger healthcare audience. I can say that one of the biggest challenges in my organization has been trying to get 
people to analyze data in a systematic way. And we know from the last uh, literature, last 10 years, people are analyzing the same clinical trial in so many different ways. And so we've been working to try to standardize this and working with the FDA, the EMEA, and we've recently produced guidelines that we hope people would start to use. So clinical trials can be analyzed in a standardized manner and so that people can start to have more confidence in the results than they have. And this is a project that we'll be also extending uh, for a recent grant that we have for another four years. So we'll be issuing additional uh, standards over the next uh, three or four years. So I think that's something that I would like to see a, a bigger, bigger improvement in the standards of analysis. What we're working on very hard is, is to make sure that our, our measurements are in line with what's needed today so that we become really quite flexible in what we measure. And that's flexibility on the part of um, the kinds of questions that health professionals or studies need to be asking from patients as, as treatments evolve very quickly. And also that we kind of become better at making sure that we ask the right questions from patients so we don't overburden them with questions that they might not um, need to answer for everything. I think it's that, that flexibility and, and moving with the times and, and making sure that we're just as quick in responding to the, the developments in the field um, so, that, so that we can make sure all the time, because at the end of the day, that we make sure all the time that we are asking the right questions and their patients are, are answering the right questions and that, that, it, that it's useful. And maybe I can just add, I mean, we've mentioned a little bit about training and education. Um, and if the listeners want to have a look, take a look at the UITC website where we've got a lot of conference training and, and videos uh, where we talk about the measures that we've developed. So there is an educational resource out there um, and keep an eye open for e email shots, etc. because we'll be putting on next year another conference with speakers like Anne-Sophie and Neil Aronson and, and the big shots of the field. So uh, these are usually free or always free. And so we'll be welcoming any of the listeners to come to that uh, conference next year in May. I want to ask you both, if you think there's a, a realistic opportunity for quality of life information you know, as, as a whole or as a component of patient-centered care, uh, to be included in clinical decision support tools or care pathways in the coming years? Yes, I would say absolutely. If you think about clinical decision-making and how the field is developing also clinical decision-making tools, you know, online tools which have questions for patients that include their values and preferences, and values and preferences are all about quality of life, then yes, we are, we can, we are certainly incorporating that and those become even more valuable as treatment becomes more complex there are more options and um yes i think that is exactly what will happen yeah i fully support my aunt sophie says i think really that's where we should be going quality life information should be used at this uh, level and hopefully in the next two or three years you will see that integrated into more guidelines and practices